This podcast is part of the Batman Universe Podcast Network, hosted by the BatmanUniverse.net. Check out everything related to Batman and the entire Bat family at the BatmanUniverse.net, including news and original content related to comics, movies, television, merchandise, video games, and more. Also, check out some of the other unique podcasts that TBU has to offer. Consider supporting this podcast by becoming a patron on Patreon. Even $1 can go a long way in supporting this content that you enjoy. Look for a link over at thebatmanuniverse.net to offer your support now. And now, on with the show. Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaking. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, Boy Wonder, I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gato, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. Backroll the Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 168 for January MMXIX. Happy New Year. Backroll the Oracle is brought to you by... Greetings, Gothamites. Lane here, asking, does the world really need another Batman podcast? Well, of course it does. He's Batman. However, rather than tackle Batman in comic books, movies, or television... My podcast, Batman Books, The Dark Knight and Prose, will follow the caped crusader via the written word, where the only pictures are those formed in the imagination. 
Each season, I choose a different book to delve into, and each episode dives deep into a few chapters at a time. So join me as I explore the streets of Gotham between the covers of novels and novelizations in Batman books, The Dark Knight and Prose. Backworld Oracle is also brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out MileHighComics.com. Well, I am here all by myself, so this might be one of the shortest episodes of 2018 at least, but we are in fact in 2019. So Happy New Year to you, as well as Happy Christmas and anything else that you may celebrate. So I did want to talk a little bit about Christmas because that's always fun. I would say that my favorite gift that I got was the DC Superhero Girls Hallmark ornament, Batgirl. So my first Batgirl ornament, and I'm just so stoked to have, you know, finally a Batgirl ornament that I can hang on a tree. I love that. As a gag gift, I suppose I got a squatty potty. And I don't know if you guys know what a squatty potty is, but there are lovely ads that you can quickly search. I do recommend the one with the unicorn that is creating sort of sherbet ice cream from its poo, of course. And the Squatty Potty just helps you, I guess, be in proper posture so that you're not straining yourself. So it's just funny because it came from a friend where we had gone to see her son in a play and we ended up staying at her son, one of her son's professor's house and it had squatty potty and we laughed and laughed. And sometimes uh, we, we have season tickets to go to uh, soccer games. We hang out there at, at UVA and sometimes if she can't make it, she'll give me her ticket and, and I'll find somebody else. And so one time she put her ticket in a Ziploc bag and in that Ziploc bag also had a coupon for a squatty potty and she put that all underneath my windshield wiper. So, you know, it's been ongoing. So she gave me this big box one day after church and I thought, okay, and I was just going to wait until Christmas to open it. I open it up. It's probably one of the first ones I opened and my parents were like what is this and I thought what a sick joke so there you go now I've got a squatty potty in my actual bathroom I got two weeks off which is lovely you know I always want more but really one shouldn't complain because there are people who don't get any time off for Christmas or just get you know two days one for Christmas one for New Year's I spent a week with my family went to see Aquaman with my nephew for the second time it was my second time his first time and then I spent a week home and or you know where I live and work and just spent it my way you know I played video games that I've been playing the Spyro Reignited Trilogy which has been great just to hop back to my childhood and I've only played Spyro 1 so Spyro 2 and then currently I'm playing Spyro 3 it's been fun to play new games as well and reading just lots of reading so it's awesome I just almost schedule out in a almost specific or non-specific way or, or specific 
but on an intentional way, how I, I spend my days. You know, I wake up and I wish I could sleep in past nine, but it's usually like 8 30, 9, 9 30 that I wake up. I usually read for about an hour, read something, and then I watch two episodes of something. Currently, I at the time, I was watching the 100 season five because I had yet to catch up on that. And then, you know, do something else, you know, might go work out at that time, come back, do another read and, and cycle through. And it's just, it's marvelous. And it's sad because I came back to work and just, I went from, you know, hundred percent free time down to like nearly nothing, you know, coming home, being exhausted, not having time to do my reading, getting stressed out because I want to do these things, but I can't, it's, which is just insane that, you know, you get stressed out for wanting to do fun things, but that is life. And for New Year's, just spent time with my department chair's family. It's been maybe like four or so years that I go over there and we hang out until midnight. And then I end up, I bring my sleeping bag usually and, and just sleep on the couch and then wake up and have some some pancakes in the morning. So so overall, it was, I think, a, you know, a good holiday. Nothing too terribly exciting but it, it was nice to spend time with friends and family. There was some joy that was snatched from me, though, and I'll tell this story, and it all involves baby Jesus. So at church, of course, you know, there are nativity scenes, and normally nativity scenes, the Jesus might be there or the Jesus might be might not be put into the manger until Christmas, which is as it should be. You might see maybe a bassinet only, and it's empty, and then they'll put the actual figurine in. So my church actually has the the baby in the bassinet ceramic, and it clearly is a separate item. So at one point in time, they should have been separated, and I guess some person used to take the baby Jesus, and so they decided to glue it down. So over the past several years... I would take the baby Jesus in his little bass and I would take it out and just hold on to him for a couple hours, you know, during praise team practice. And then I'll put him right back. I'll take pictures of him and, and post them online, things like that. Just little fun. The pastor knew about this. The main pastor, he knew about this. Later on, you know, the associate pastor, which was actually my mistake, the associate pastor, which I'll let you know. So several years, never did anything. I, you know, treated him reverently. He would just hang out with me on my seat as we practiced, and I put him back. So I wasn't tossing him around. So this year, doing the same thing, at one point, it was the, the Sunday before Christmas, an older uh congregational member or parishioner said to me, I'd appreciate it if you put the Jesus back. We don't want it to get broken. Please put the Jesus back, which was interesting because, you know, she had to book frame the whole thing with put the Jesus back twice. And I thought, yikes, you know, there, there that goes. There goes my Christmas joy, which I did. I did. And I was sad. I mean, because that had been a little tradition for me and I, I had fun with it. Again, I wasn't doing anything terrible. I told the pastor, I said I got in trouble for it. And I come back the Sunday after Christmas and it's Jesus, the actual Jesus, is gone completely. And so I'm slightly in a panic because I thought, well, someone just told me to stop doing it. So I know that they're going to go to me first. So when, well, first of all, I texted my pastor and said, someone stole baby Jesus. And this is going to be, this is going to lead me to trouble. And then before church started, I sought that woman out. And I said, I just want you to know that I did not 
take the baby Jesus. And there was some sort of muttering about, well, that's our mystery solved. And she thought that she would know where to find it. So back to my associate pastor, I come to find out that the Sunday that I got in trouble by this woman, during Sunday school, the associate pastor said something like, you know, I don't know if you've noticed, but Sella likes to take the little baby Jesus out there. And I guess he didn't do it as a, you know, shame on her thing. But, uh, you know, she's absolutely right, because Jesus doesn't belong in there. But in so doing, he basically threw me under the bus, threw me to the wolves, and that's why I got in trouble. So I was betrayed by my associate pastor. I have yet to confront him about this, but I certainly will because he's the one that caused me to lose my Christmas joy. Where will baby Jesus is now? I have no idea. I'm not sure who is the one who took it out of there, but all I have to say is if I had still been cherishing him as I was, this never would have happened. So that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. My final little topic that I want to talk about was Heroes in Crisis number four. And I've not been reading Heroes in Crisis. I believe it's basically the this year's version of Crisis. And some characters are dying, and they're for real dying, meaning they're not coming back. And Harley Quinn seems to be the main character. So that's basically all I can say about it. But I got a Facebook message from somebody, and he was asking what age Babs was, and then it led to, you know, other things, because it gets it gets confusing, because now, let's just say that she's 25 now, and I just had to ask clarifying questions and things like that. But it all stemmed, his questions stemmed from Heroes in Crisis number four. And I knew that Barbara Gordon, aka Batgirl, was in it because I had seen on Google, you know, it knows me now, which is scary. So it would pop up and, and there were some articles about it. So I figured I should probably pick this up. So he was just, he was talking about that primarily with the art, which is something that we'll talk about. But that is perhaps one of the main issues. So he was basically saying that uh, she's drawn older. So she doesn't really look like she's 25, which I can agree with that. And her proportions are larger than you would potentially want Babs to be. I think Babs, I mean, she's not flat-chested, but she's not, I would say, well-endowed. But her proportions also are Harley Quinn proportions. So that's a little strange. And just to use sort of the same model. So that's, you know, it's artistic choice. But I think one of the issues, especially with what's going on, so let me back up a little bit. When you first see her, she is giving a testimony. I think there's some sort of company. See, I'm so sorry. But there's some sort of company that interviews or I guess treats therapy-wise heroes that have gone through some sort of psychological, uh, you know, PTSD, things like that. And I think they're, all of the information is leaked out at some point. So we see Batgirl and it's a three-by-three paneled page and at first I had no idea what she's doing because she is sitting there it's all word well I was going to say it's all wordless but she's sitting there she takes off her utility belt and she moves then she starts to pull down her pants and pull up her top that connected and it's basically showing the entry and exit wound of the bullet that shattered her spine so 
one of the articles I read, of course, was just about the sexiness of this. And I agree. Before you even read, if you're one of those people who reads, you know, sees the whole page at once, good for you. But of course, I kind of go panel by panel. And so at first, I had no idea what she's doing. And I think artistically, the way it is presented, it is overly sexualized, I think, um, or at least just sexualized. And I don't know if that that wasn't the intention, I think, but it's just the way that the artist actually brought it out so there's that and then she goes to harley and she talks to harley basically she's trying to talk her down they get into a bit of a scuffle and then there's another several panels page of them holding hands is the best way i can say it but basically harley punched and Batgirl caught the punch and so there's a struggle and then the struggle shifts and then it gets to them in, in more of a like a fonder, you know, holding hands there. So it, it's she, Batgirl, is talking about her experience with with Batman. And Batgirl is saying that Batman's going to get to the place of seeing Harley like he does Batgirl, pitiful and broken, just another product of his failure to capture the stupid Joker. Okay, so of course, we're we're tackling the killing joke. She says another scared, scarred girl on his conscience. And he'll make assumptions about you, what you can and can't do, who you are, what you did, all of that stuff. So she understands in the end, they, they end up sort of going off together, they embrace and, and go off together. So of course, we're we're talking about that. Now, I have an issue with this page, because however nice, you know, that's the, the panels are, I disagree with Batman's presentation there. I think absolutely, that is the relationship between Batman and Barbara Gordon pre flashpoint. But I think at this point in time, even though that history is still intact, the way it's been presented, the way we've seen Batman and Barbara Gordon, I think, you know, especially in the, the trial of Batwoman, right, with how much respect she was given, that Batman doesn't view her that way. And we've seen no evidence to that. So I have an issue with that, of course. And then it's just weird that it's it's Batgirl that's talking her down. And yeah, they have that connection, of course, with the Joker. But I do not see Batgirl or Barbara Gordon and, and Harleen Quinzel as contemporaries. I feel like Harleen is absolutely older than Barbara Gordon. Because if Barbara, let's just say, let's put that number at 25. And it takes like 8 to 10 years or something like that to get, you know, PhD psychology. So we're, I feel like Harleen is pushing 30. And I just feel like however emotional the scene is for me it doesn't necessarily make sense I, I don't know if I see as as good of a connection as I would if there were someone else going to bat for Harley you know like well Poison Ivy's a bad guy but you know someone like that so those are just some of the things that I thought about while reading Heroes in Crisis uh yeah I think, you know, let me know. I'd love to hear what you think. Was the art too sexy in, in that page? And did you know what she was doing? And do you think it was present? I mean, it's a skin-tight costume, which, you know, you've got to be aerodynamic and everything. But I thought, I'm I'm distracted by her body, and it's not because of the bullet wound. Like, what is the point in what you're doing here? And do you guys think, you know, Batman and Barbara Gordon's relationship is true to this now? Or is it only talking about the pre-flashpoint? And finally, do you think Harley and Babs are contemporaries? I'd love to hear what you have to say about that. 
Well, that's all I have for introduction. So we're going to do a couple reviews. And by a couple, I just mean two, which is lovely. So this should be a nice little cut and dry, shorter episode. So we'll see. I did want to mention that Oracle does pop up in Young Justice number six, Day of Judgment. Writer Peter David Pencil Todd Nock, inker Larry Strucker, and colorist Jason Wright and Digital Chameleon. And the Young Justice is fighting against a phantom form of Despero. And at one point, Robin actually contacts Oracle for information. You can see her floating head appear. But what I want to focus on actually is Birds of Prey. We're getting back to the Birds of Prey stories. Number seven, The Villain, which cover date was July 1999. Writer Chuck Dixon, penciler Pete Krause, inker Drew Garassi, colorist Gloria Vasquez. And thanks to DC Wikia for this summary. Black Canary is in a Markovian garage fighting General Garanza, the man Oracle sent her to rescue. Hmm. After she floors him, she makes it clear she's on his side, not there to kill him, and together they jump into an open armored vehicle in an attempt to get away from Garanza's real enemies who have arrived and are firing on them. While Oracle tries to direct her from her home, Black Canary requests some backup, but Oracle denies her, reminding her they're breaking numerous international laws. While Black Canary drives through a police roadblock, a car pulls onto the road behind her and its driver detonates a bomb strapped to his chest, sending the armored vehicle into the air. Black Canary and Garanza manage to escape and find a roof to hide on from where Black Canary can see their destination. She and Oracle discuss the general's current situation. Being arrested in rival Markovia, where his enemies would rather see him dead than extradited to his own Basque Verde, which Black Canary doesn't have a problem with, but Oracle tells her it's all his right to do process before disconnecting. Black Canary and Garanza move out towards the Hotel Grenoble, with Black Canary refusing to give the general the details of the escape plan lest he be captured and give her up. When asked, she admits she does not like Garanza, whom she says butchered thousands of his own people and ran Bosca Verde like a twisted theme park with its economy built on sweatshops. As they cross from one roof to another, a sniper's bullet catches Garanza in the back. After dragging his body behind a chimney, she throws a canary cry grenade towards the sniper, subduing him and waking the general who was wearing a bulletproof vest. While the general takes someone's less conspicuous clothes, Oracle confirms to Black Canary that the Markovians have confirmed that the general wasn't killed in the car bomb, and it's all over the news that he's alive and escaped. Beeb, yes, he's back, contacts Oracle, telling her she's always busy and needs a vacation. When he suggests Europe is nice this time of year, she explodes with laughter. On the street, Black Canary and General Garanza duck into the subway, where Garanza attempts to defend himself against Black Canary's earlier allegations. He tells her that the thousands he butchered were enemies of his people, and the media failed to report their atrocities. Further, he says the sweatshops were a step up from the prostitution and cane fields the Bosco Verdan women had for work before. As they're talking, both a police officer and a group of citizens identify the general and move in on him. Reacting quickly, Black Canary shoves the general onto the tracks and pushes him against a wall while a train comes past, then fights off the men as they come. When one of the men gets behind her, Garanza picks up a gun and shoots him in the back, then multiple times on the ground before dropping the gun and going peaceably with Black Canary to face his charges in his homeland, where he believes he will be exonerated. Waiting for an elevator, Black Canary and General Garanza discuss his politics more, distracting them when a passenger shoots Garanza in the chest. 
Now dying, Garanza asks how they were going to escape, and Black Canary tells him they had an ultralight aircraft hidden on the roof of the building. While she flies that out of the country, Oracle tells her that it wasn't her fault, but Black Canary says she'll never believe it and is no longer sure of her assessment of the general. Next up, Nightwing. We all know which one that is. Well, I feel certain that I've seen this before in a movie where there is some sort of sleaze ball and our heroes are supposed to protect him even though they hate him and you learn more about said sleaze ball and perhaps even develop some empathy or compassion for him or her. I mean, goodness, it just happened in Daredevil season three, didn't it? With Dex and Kingpin. So while the conceit could potentially seem like a cliche, I do think Dixon did a good job with it. Especially since he starts the issue off in Medias Race. And you don't learn the whole story at once, but in pieces. You don't really understand why there are people in Markovia trying to kill Garanza until nearly the end. So I do like that build up, even though, of course, you're asking the entire time. And speaking of Markovia, isn't it nice to have a classic DC Comics locale? Yes, I love it. The humor in this issue is on point. I think the best part of the whole thing. You can hear the sarcasm between Dinah and Oracle and Dinah and Garanza, and it just really seems to fit all the characters. What makes it so hilarious is that Oracle is playing the straight guy. She's just relaying information or asking a question, and Dinah takes that and throws it back at her because of how bad a situation it is, which it is a pretty dire situation. They do seem to go to a lot of trouble for this guy for the case of due processing, and it makes it seem ridiculous by the end since he knows that he's going to get off scot-free. So you think that this guy is terrible just through the lens of Dinah, but then you see what he was doing to help his country, best intentions, but perhaps not the best actions. Dinah does lose her argument, I think, a little bit when she brings up Hitler, and I feel like there's something called like the Hitler argument where people actually go to that extreme you know they talk oh but what about Hitler and you can't explain that away obviously and so it seems like they basically cheated to win the argument but they couldn't win the argument on another basis besides Hitler so that that was interesting I think you see Garanza's true nature peek through when he shoots them that man repeatedly in the subway but I'm actually really surprised we don't see Oracle's reaction to it as we have in the past when Huntress or Dinah were overviolent. I mean, she even sort of waves it away at the end, really, in dismissing the whole mission so casually with a, you know, you did your best, don't blame yourself, that sort of thing. But instead, we just see that Dinah is shocked and rightly justified in her hatred of Garanza. But then Garanza saves Dinah, and you have to wonder if that was his true character or... Was he just trying to prove something to her in the end? I guess we'll never know. It's up to read our interpretation. It's interesting that the final thought that goes through his mind is what the escape plan was. Since he mentions that near the beginning, you'd think he he would get his jollies from doing exciting escapes because he said that he would have really liked the ultralight aircraft. Finally, we've got Beeb, of course, and this time he's making Oracle crack up by telling her to take a vacation and go to Europe. Well, I mean, Europe has its own problems. Thank you very much. But still, the question remains, who is this Beeb character? Overall, I would say it's a pretty solid issue. It's got more going for it in the dialogue than the story itself, if that makes any sense. It does seem somewhat anticlimactic and strange how it ends, you know, just riding off on a failure, more or less, and kind of built up everything. So it's a one shot and it does as one shots do. I'm going to give this an eight out of 10 birds.
Well, now we have some listener feedback. Mail time! Here's the mail. It never fails. It makes me want to wag my tail. When it comes, I want to wail. There was one comment on the recent episode, episode 167, from the terrible Joshua Lappin Bertoni, who said that the podcast said love built. And thank goodness that actually doesn't exist because it would be awful. But we have two legitimate emails that I will get to. First one is from Michael Ridge. Salway, Stella. I enjoyed all five parts of the No Man's Land series, even though it wasn't a crossover event that I bought at the time. I think I've mentioned that it was just too big for my budget. Congratulations on reaching your ninth anniversary with Barbara Gordon. That's a lot of time you've given for other people's enjoyment. I know, right? Thank you. Once again, you mentioned that you didn't know where her law degree fit into her education. I have a theory. When Barbara was introduced in the 60s, we learned that she had a PhD in something and a master's degree in library science. No other degree in library science was offered until about 10 years after her first appearance. My personal belief is that her PhD was in European history from 1400 to 1600 because that would include the proliferation of printed books after Gutenberg. Later in that same run, she said she had taken the bar exam and was a licensed attorney. So when did she get the degree that allowed her to qualify to take the bar exam? I suggest that her undergraduate degree was an LLB, Legum Baccalaureus, Bachelor of Laws. Until 1971 or so, this was the professional qualification for a lawyer in the U.S., as it still is in much of the world. I think Barbara took this degree because she had some thought of becoming an FBI agent, and lawyers were and are qualified to apply for agent jobs. J. Edgar Hoover had an LLB, and he was the head of the FBI for most of Barbara Gordon's life. Why didn't we see her practice? Barbara probably got her undergraduate degree when she was 18 or 19. Despite her qualifications, she could not practice law in a state like New York that requires a person to be 21 to sit for the bar exam. 17 states still have this age requirement. So Barbara went on with her life, and she never had a good reason to take the bar exam. As the FBI doesn't require a license to practice, just the education. She said she took the bar exam as a lark, but she was probably challenging herself to see if she could pass after three years or more away from the study. Hope this makes sense to you, Michael Ridge. Michael, you did a wonderful job going in more depth than I certainly have or had had time you know, to, to sit down and go through her education. I think all that sounds great. Uh, I do think it's funny and, and totally in character just that she also would sit down and, and take it for funsies and, and see, you know, also technologically, you know, could she hack in and, and take the test, but you know, it also proves her intelligence. So I do like that. But you offer a great explanation for everything else. And you had offered some insight on on years, I, I didn't know about some of those degrees and everything European history. I think that's a good one. I wonder also about English, because history, absolutely. I wonder if an English or literature degree, because she's a librarian, so there's got to be some passion there, not only for information, but for a love of books, great works, that I wonder if that's potentially an option for a major as well. Now, I did look this up, and I have yet to get it, but in Gotham Knights 25, and this is during the Bruce Wayne murderer run, Barbara actually has taken she explains that she's taken a correspondence course in law and she ends up 
obtaining a Juris Doctor degree, which uh, actually allows her to sit for a state bar's exam, and then that gets her a license to practice law. And so after getting this basic degree, she took an extension course at Harvard and earns a master's degree of law. So that's way, I mean, what is that? In 2000, 2001, I mean, I'm not sure where, where Bruce Wayne murder lies, but we've got some time to get there. But the whole point of her even relaying all that information is because she was going to help Bruce Wayne and, and be his attorney, potentially. So we at least get to suss that out, but everything else, and, and I wonder if they sort of forgot, they forgot the past and and what she had said and then decided to to strike up something new. But that's just something that I dug up as well. So we'll see once we get there. But thank you so much, Michael. I really appreciate all that information. The other email is actually funny because Donovan said direct all your hate mail to Joshua Lappin Bertoni. And in fact, I got it. No, I did ask for it. It is from an Aquaman fan whose name is Jason Hendricks. And I told him just write in because he texted me and said, they do have a healthy relationship for, you know, like the past 10 years or something. I said, don't tell me you need to write in. So here we go. Greetings, Stella. I'm here to take issue with Josh's Aquaman spotlight from last month, sort of. I can't say he took the bad things in Arthur and Mira's relationship out of context because DC treated Mira terribly for years, but I do feel he didn't talk about the positive aspects of their relationship. For starters, it's been mostly smooth sailing for the past decade. They were reunited at the end of Blackest Night miniseries in 2008 by Jeff Johns and Ivan Race when Aquaman was resurrected by the White Spectrum. His return was the only thing capable of calming Mira down, as she'd spent the entire miniseries raging as a Red Lantern, barely able to engage in speech or tell friend from foe. When an individual becomes a Red Lantern, their heart stops beating and their life force becomes tied to the ring and the red light spectrum. Arthur and the power of love literally restarted Mira's heart. Since then, they've been constant companions, always by each other's side and both willing to put the other person before themselves. When Arthur was accused of a crime he didn't commit, Mira broke him out of prison and fought the U.S. Army. She even punched Superman. The Atlanteans, being xenophobic idiots, don't like Arthur very much and they like Mira less. When he had to make a choice between the throne and Mira, he ultimately chose Mira. Their relationship is often shown to be loving, supportive, and playful, and both are willing to kill to protect the other if need be. So while, yes, their relationship has had issues in the past, I do think they are each other's one true love, despite what Josh would have you believe. Sincerely, Jason. So I think Jason would probably say that they would be a hot couple. So there you go. Jason has spoken for all the Aquaman lovers in case you had a disagreement. But remember, you can always write in and I will absolutely read your Josh hate mail on air. Thanks for writing in. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, please write in to backgirl.oracle at gmail.com or post it on the website. I'm going to take a break, but when I come back, I will review Batgirl 82, a.k.a. 30. But first, Zeiss's Radio Hour featuring Rock the Gaspa by The Clash.
Welcome back. So just one back roll issue. Some weird, there's been some weird printing. I'm not sure, but there were two, you know, in December, two in January. It's just a little odd. I think it starts to sort itself out soon enough. But this is back roll number 30, or as I like to call it, back roll 82, Old Enemies Part 1. Writer Margaret Scott, penciler Paul Pelletier, inker Norm Rapman, and colors, the beautiful Jordi Belair. A month following her surgery, Bab stands on a rooftop running through a checklist, guns, pellets, batterings, several times before taking the leap of faith. But when she does, she loves it. She swings past the billboard for Luciana Alejo, who is running for Congress, and one platform that she is using is cleaning up the corruption inside the GCPD. Jim Gordon is understandably stressed. At a political rally, ironically, the GCPD is keeping the crowd from Alejo as she criticizes the GCPD, there's the irony, saying that the people have the power to change the way things are. As she speaks, Jason Bard, that's right, Jason Bard, and three other men stand in an alley planning to stir up trouble in order to help the rival political candidate. While the directives are to be sure that it is not traced back to Branson Moore, they are also supposed to keep from getting physical with the people. 
a directive that one of the men doesn't take as he slams into a cop, shouting that he, as in the violent guy, is an Alejo supporter. Bart and the others go to restrain the guy, but more violence erupts when Backroll arrives. She tries to help with crowd control, but Jim tells her it's a police matter and tells her that he has an understanding with Batman, but won't be lectured by her because she told him that he should be protecting the crowd's rights and freedoms. Apparently, she leans forward to touch him because he goes off on her and she realizes she made a mistake that he doesn't know her there's an explosion in the crowd and Batgirl gives chase to the group of men when she catches up to them she reveals the face of jason bard but can't do anything about it when he shoots her in the face with some sort of aerosol spray back at the gordon residence babs is putting eye drops in her eyes and perusing alejo's website when a frustrated jim appears he's on edge with the fbi and internal affairs sniffing around and he doesn't think the best answer is alejo's idea to take down the gcpd at possibly the worst time ever she tells her dad that she's going to volunteer with alejo's campaign jim goes off and babs walks out of the house and i mean he goes off as in he started yelling During an Uber drive to campaign headquarters, Frankie calls Babs to tell her people are buying up a lot of Gordon Clean Energy stock, which seems suspicious since they aren't rolling out anything new. Babs tells Frankie not to worry and heads into the campaign offices. Once inside, she bumps into Izzy, who leads her into Alejo's office, and once again, she comes face to face with Jason Bard. He's there to get a job to protect Alejo, saying that Moore was behind the rally violence. Babs tells Alejo not to trust him since he framed her father to steal his job, to which he replies, I play dirty because the city plays dirty. Hmm. I'm sure there's... What a way of thinking there. The final bomb, excuse the pun, that Jason drops is that he knows about Cormorant. (gasps) Yes. Another person who wants Alejo dead. Flash to an updated Cormorant motto who has a board with strings and pictures of Alejo and Backroll, as well as others next in the crosshairs of Cormorant. Woo! Okay. Well, first of all, let's talk about our favorite panel. Variant cover. It's always going to be the variant cover, isn't it? By Joshua Middleton. And this time, it's no less. It's gorgeous. It's gorgeous again. Now, this one was interesting because it popped up on Twitter. And someone had tweeted that the image, it looks like Lord, L-O-R-D-E, the singer, the musician. And Don sent that to me. And however beautiful it is, and it, it absolutely does look like Lord, it doesn't look like Barbara Gordon. She, or he, sorry, uh, toned down the color of the hair, and it just doesn't, I don't know, it does not look like her. You know who it does look like, actually, besides Lord, is that girl who was on, shoot, what is her name? She was on Suburgatory, and I think some scary horror film as well, and I think she was in talks to, oh, Jane Levy or Levi, yeah, I think that's it. Also looks like her as well, but still, the toned down hair, it's more brown brunette than auburn or red, but still, beautiful. My favorite page within the book is the splash page of Batgirl swinging through Gotham. Just the joy and exuberance on her face. And it's funny when she's going through the checklist, I'm having sort of nervous palpitations and flashbacks to Batgirl Year One where she jumps off and then her rope is cut by Batman because she didn't, well, you know, the force and all of that stuff. But it just reminds me of that. But just that nice splash page of her having fun and and loving because that's, you know, what Batgirl needs to do. Not self second guessing herself, having doubts and, and being negative. You know, she needs to enjoy what she's doing, you know, or else why do it. 
<laughs> so there was a month gap and lots of things happened. And I hate off panel land. I guess the month almost works in real time since it's been, I feel like it's been less than a month really, but you know, a month between issues. But it just seems like it would have been nice to see what happens in that month because we end that issue with her going off into surgery. The FBI is there with Jim. And then we cut here and all we know from dialogue is obviously she's you know, working through her surgery and PT and things like that. But Jim getting talked to by the FBI and I, I mean, you don't get to witness that, but they're sniffing around. That's all we really get to to learn. And so I just wonder, why did we skip those conversations? Did Margaret Scott deem them not worthless, but maybe boring and we wouldn't be as engaged? But, you know, I like the the Barbara Gordon struggling to, to get back physically or anytime I saw Oracle and she was working out or doing real life things like getting to the tub or something is interesting to me. So that's something I would have liked to see. So I'm disappointed that we didn't get to see that. We have yet another altercation between father, daughter, and, you know, I can get over one and explained away. And then they had that nice moment when he was in the hospital, but tensions are running high. And, you know, you can absolutely say that Jim is under a lot of stress and it doesn't help that Barbara mentioned volunteering at the worst possible time ever. And she can't really explain what her motivations are to protect Alejo as Batgirl. But it's just fraught with tension. And I'm not really sure where, like, of the two people that should be able to work through this and and Jim be able to vent, but Barbara be understanding and have good conversations rather than yelling matches. I mean, this this is the team to do that. But doesn't seem to be so you know every time there's some sort of yelling match i'm getting increasingly nervous and especially because we have the interaction between the two when they're on the street and that was i guess before right yeah so that really hostile interaction where he's got to understand with batman i don't know you batgirl and then i guess she reaches for him you can't really tell by the art but He's like, don't touch me. And he's reaching for his, his peace. And she's like, oh, what are you doing? I, that's right. Babs, he doesn't know who you are. But so close together, she's, you know, being political and saying, you promised to serve and protect these people and their rights. And he's like, I won't be lectured by you. It's it's almost like a, a, a generational issue. You know, Barbara being the younger generation than the older generation with Jim and and is one unable to change and, and being a stalwart. I mean, is that what we've come to? And, I, you know, I think Jim certainly is old guard, but I, I feel like he's more open than what credit he's been given, being given right now. So just lots of tension. And again, I'll say that she was really close. She was really close to him, and he should absolutely know who his daughter is. But there's that. Ah, the return of Jason Bard. So once I saw him there, I thought, aha, it's him. He's returned. Of course, we saw him in what Batman and Robin Eternal. And it was disappointed because he is not a good guy. And you miss that past that he had with Barbara. But I'm looking forward to see what he's got up his sleeve here. I guess we just have to be resigned with him him being a bad guy, which feels uncomfortable to me. It's like putting on the wrong, the, the shoes on the wrong foot. But 
to see this tension between Barbara Gordon and Jason Bard is rather interesting, right? If you've been reading from the very beginning and, you know, Batman family and all of that stuff, it's it's interesting. His quote is also interesting, right? I play dirty because the city plays dirty. And that works to a certain extent. You know, if you know you've got to get ahead, you got to do something bad to do well, maybe, I guess I could see. But... I don't see how it relates to this, you know, getting because he played dirty because the city plays dirty, but he is dirty, which is a little strange because he was getting rid of a, a decent man. So I what a weird quote. And then we've got this, right? This is probably besides Jason Bard. I think the Comorant, his appearance is insane. Do you remember who this guy is, right? Do you remember who he is? Edward Wells, he was a hired assassin, and he worked for General Scar, and they both were trying to eliminate Backroll, and uh, Backroll defeated him, and he ends up helping, I guess, in, in that defeat to bring down Scar. And then he, later on, he was suspected of murdering Slash, Later on, he ends up being killed <laughs> by Slash. So all of this interesting stuff way back when, right? Detective Comics 491, 493, Batgirl special number one. So we're, wow. I don't know if I would say it's a deep dive because he clearly has that relationship with her in her past and has caused some issues with her, I would say mentally, emotionally. But this is an interesting poll, right? Velvet Tiger, I think, is the first really interesting poll, and now we've got this guy. So I think biggest question for me right now is to what extent are we going to see the history between Cormoran and Batgirl? Is there a history? He's got her picture on the wall, you know? Maybe the scar and slash business is uh, true. I don't know. I mean, it might be starting off from scratch. I do want to comment on his character design, but... I first want to see him in all his glory rather than just sitting down. So we'll see. If you remember, he had very military uniform on and his hat and the hat had a C on it and all that stuff. So it'll be really interesting to see. And also, we've got to ask what's going on with Gordon Clean Energy. Of course, just to have it pop up like that. And then Frankie's saying people are buying shares. Elisa's concerned. Something suspicious. You don't just drop that in unless there's a purpose. So wondering what that purpose might be and is it tied to the election so we'll see so barbara is actually getting into some political activism there but will she be the that would be crazy if alejo gets killed and then barbara like steps in to be the candidate wouldn't it maybe cormorant takes her out and then barbara is the candidate that'd be interesting i don't know some way to get barbara back into the congress seat would be interesting okay i think I'm going to give this an 8.5 out of 10. I'm just really interested to see how these two people, Jason Bard and Comorant, one really important, one minorly important, right? Sort of leads to Barbara or Batgirl's retirement. How is that going to play out in these pages? So there you go. Now over to Chris's Cornucopia of Curiosities. Ah, uh, that's like ringing in the new year with both a Twilight Zone marathon on one channel and a Batman 66 marathon on another. And not being sick. Thank you very much, Stella. Hello, Bat fans, and welcome once again to the Chris's Cornucopia of Curiosity segment. Thank you very much, listeners, for downloading. And as always, thank you for not fast-forwarding. My name is Chris, and I'm very glad to be with you. Today, I'm looking at Batman Adventures number 14, Archie meets Batman 66, number 6 of 6, and a Nightwatch Nightwing numbers 55 and 56. Batman Adventures number 14 was cover dated November 1993, 
It had a cover price of $1.25. The story was entitled Puglick Enemy and was written by Kelly Puckett, Mike Parabek was the penciler, Rick Burchett was the inker, and Rick Taylor was the colorist. The Batman was created by Bob Kane with Bill Finger. The story was reprinted in Batman Adventures Volume 2, which came out in 2015. This does appear to be available on Kindle. Act 1. Crack out! Robin captures some thugs running a protection racket at a Gotham deli, then returns to the Batcave. Alfred greets him and conveys that Bruce is glad Dick is filling in for him, and Dick says he misses being Robin more often due to college. Meanwhile, on a stormy night, the ventriloquist and Scarface have dug out of Arkham Asylum with a spoon. Act 2. The Great Jog! Scarface and his gang have taken hostages at Gotham First National Bank. Back in the Batcave, Dick tells Alfred there is no point in going back to college and that he should be Robin full-time. Alfred recalls a time to Dick when he was a young man and had the dilemma of his path of being a manservant or having a career in theater. Just then, a police bulletin breaks in with word of a hostage situation. Smash cut to Robin meeting Commissioner Gordon, who apprises Robin of the situation status. Back in the bank, while Scarface's gang is blowing the vault door open, Wesker asks Scarface how he came up with the idea for the caper, and Scarface tells him that it was Wesker himself. From a movie he told him about, and though not mentioned, the plot appears to be Die Hard, complete with the gang calling themselves terrorists, planning to take hostages to the roof and blowing it up, choppers in the air nearby, and them escaping in the confusion. Just then, Robin appears. Act 3. The Gig Clock. Over the next two pages and six panels, Robin takes out Scarface's gang. However, Scarface has more sticks of dynamite to blow in one minute, and orders Robin to clear out. Robin does so, making sure the hostages exit first. Scarface and the ventriloquist take what they can from the vault, but Wesker trips. Scarface crawls for the money, but Wesker worries about the bomb. Robin uses a bat rope to pull Wesker's leg away from the explosion, but Scarface isn't as lucky as his wooden face lands near them. Later at Stately Wayne Manor, home of millionaire Bruce Wayne and his youthful ward, Dick Grayson, Bruce tells of his last adventure to Dick, but Alfred interrupts to remind Dick of the time. Dick says he's due back at college. Bruce asks Dick if there's anything else he should know about. Dick gives Alfred a knowing glance and smile and says, No, that's it. See you later, Bruce. The end. <sighs> Full disclosure, the ventriloquist is one of my least favorite villains in Batman's rogues gallery. Mileage may vary on Scarface's speech for humor effect. That said, I enjoyed the story much more than I expected to. The story had a balance of high stakes with peril and levity with humor. The subplot of Dick contemplating quitting college to be Robin full-time didn't have as much weight, in my opinion, as intended. I do like Alfred offering his advice, but his words just didn't make sense to me. I don't know if this decision had to be one thing or the other, or both. As for the art, Parabek does a great job of depicting a Robin that is age-appropriate, a young adult that wears a costume and looks credible doing so. This was a nice change of pace story, something different, a Robin Solo story in this title, with some good external and internal struggle with the main character. I'm going to give Batman Adventures, number 14, 7.5 out of 10 bats. Next up, Archie meets Batman 66, number 6, the conclusion of this miniseries. For the creative team, for the final untitled chapter we have, story by Jeff Parker and Michael Morissi, pencils by Dan Parent, inks by Jay Bone. The main cover was done by Michael and Laura Allred. There were variant covers by ooh, Joe Giella with Vincent Lavallo. 
Jerry Ordway with Glenn Wentmore, Dan Parent with Anwar Hanano, Ruben Procopio with Matt Wilson, and Greg Smallwood. With the villains seemingly having control over Riverdale, Joker starts to joyride and do donuts in the Batmobile. While Batman watches, his wrist tied behind a pillar of an unknown building, and still wearing his utility belt? <laughs> but still, he manages to reach his Bat radio. Back at Archie's house, Rob and Batgirl and the gang get Batman's radio message. The supercomputer in the trunk of the Batmobile can break the siren's spell over Riverdale's adults. But the Joker has it. Batgirl says, If only there was a distraction. And that gives Archie an idea. Smash cut to Archie's jalopy that now looks something like a Batmobile, with not just Robin and Batgirl getting out, but also Betty as Super Teen, Jughead as Captain Hero, Reggie as Evil Heart, Veronica presumably as Power Teen, and of course Archie as Pure Heart the Powerful. A fight then ensues with the younger set punching and kicking hench people. Archie frees Batman. Dilton, now wearing a pasta strainer on his head, manages to disable the speakers that then takes out Siren's spell. With the spell broken, it's Riverdale's adults that corral the villains, and the heroes go to Pop's chocolate shop with our main cast dancing and doing the Batusi. The end. I think my past reviews of Batman 66 team-up miniseries, which have been a few years gone by now, have always had me complaining about missed opportunities, uneven pacing, wanting more action and more cliffhangers primarily. I think I've resigned to not having certain story elements present in any new Batman 66 miniseries, if there would be any forthcoming at all, and just lucky to get them. And, well, with Batman 66 teaming up with Archie, I didn't have any big expectations with action and cliffhangers beforehand. I did have expectations with something light, by way of adventure, and some good artwork. The artwork really exceeded my expectations. Dan Parrott does a great job with the Batman characters, with Batgirl and Catwoman in particular. This was overall fun, gave us all the main villains, had some action and bat fights, and some charm. The names of the Archie hero alter egos were not mentioned, and that is very, very unfortunate, and something of a disservice to anyone not familiar with them. Betty mentions she has an aunt named Harriet in Gotham City. Robin's legs were distinctly colored white, and his arms were flesh-toned, implying that he wears tights. Nice touch there. But as I stated before, I was disappointed that the issues had a lot of ads. There were at least ten pages of them here in this issue, and frankly, I thought that was appalling. Still, I'm rating this just on the content, and I will give this issue seven out of ten bats, but maybe a six and a half overall for the series. But it's primarily elevated on Dan Parent's artwork. Over on the TV website, Ian gave this particular issue two and a half out of five. The trade paperback for this series is coming out on March 27th. And hopefully there will be a sequel, and not the last of Batman 66 in comic books. Now, for everyone's segment within a segment, Night Watch, where I take a look at the Nightwing title from a shipper perspective. In Nightwing number 55, Rick, or Kick, or, yeah, Rick Grayson is at P's bar. And while she's taking out the trash, she gets caught up with a mob infected with scarecrow toxin. There's a big fight. Rick comes to her rescue and tells her to get back in the bar where she barricades herself per Rick's orders. In Nightwing number 56, Rick comes to the aid of Alphonse Sapienza, pretty much rescuing him and Teen Nightwing from the Scarecrow, and they defeat Scarecrow by the end of the issue. Perhaps a very lukewarm shipper alert for B and Rick in number 55, but mm, nothing to speak of in 
Issue 56, so no, repeat no shipper alert. This concludes this edition of Nightwatch. Listeners, be sure to check out Stella and the Required Reading Podcast. I'd like to give a shout-out to the Sutherlands. Be sure to check out Warlord Worlds, Trekker Talk, Xenozoic Xenophiles, Sensational Sleuths, Fantastic Fantasies, and Convention Correspondence. Listeners, you can find me on Twitter at BTO and Batbooks, BTO as in Batgirl to Oracle, and Batbooks as in Batbooks for Beginners, another podcast that I can be found on that I co-host with Jerry Green, where we examine and review trade paperbacks and collected material of Batman or related characters. You can also find us talking about independent comics and whatnot on the Professor Frenzy Show. Please try that podcast. You can also find me on Trust Your Cape, a new role-playing game podcast. Episodes will periodically air on A Gal Walks Into a Comic Shop podcast, hosted by Bob and Barbara, and joined by September and myself. It's lots of fun. Please check it out. Please feel free to leave any comments for myself on this segment or for the podcast on the TBU website, and please give us a good review over on iTunes. If you'd like to lend your support to the Batman Universe website that has news, articles, editorials, and their fine family of podcasts, you can make a donation on Patreon or a one-time donation by PayPal by following the links on the Batman Universe website homepage. Thank you for your support. If any of you wish to contact me directly, I can be reached by email at bruce.wayne at gothamcity.us. And again, thank you for your support. Can Commissioner Gordon find an undercover cop captured by Rupert Thorne without the aid of Batman? Could there possibly be any shipping in Nightwing with Rick and the Joker's daughter? Don't fail to listen to the next podcast where the answers to these thorny theories will be thankfully thoroughly gone through thoroughfares. Same Stella feed, same Stella sight. Thanks, Chris. Now it's time for my anime watch list where I recommend a show and a film that's anime, of course, and tell you whether it is new viewer friendly or you've got to be a veteran of the anime and you know what's happening. This time I'm going to do two series. First is on Netflix. It's Hero Mask, 15 episodes, 2018. Now there's a mysterious mask before James Blood and the man behind it is one that shouldn't exist. What is the mystery surrounding this mask? So begins an action-packed crime story set in a beautiful city. That was all I got on my anime uh, watch list. But it almost Jason Blood, or sorry, James Blood is like practically James Bond. It's very much a police spy esque. I mean, it, it reminded me of a James Bond thing that could happen. And there's the technology, and there's uh, a female character as well who is. It, helping out but she's with sort of the the da district not i don't think that's what it's called over there in england because it does take place in england say the james bond thing but it was all it was interesting it was fast-paced and just felt like a, a james bond thriller so i i recommend that i think it's new anime viewer approved and i definitely it's got the english dub so i'm assuming that's got the japanese version as well and then I also watched over break Mushishi, 26 episodes, 2005. Mushi, the most basic forms of life in the world. They exist without any goals or purposes aside from simply being. They are beyond the shackles of the words good and evil. Mushi can exist in countless forms and are capable of mimicking things from the natural world such as plants, diseases, and even phenomena like rainbows. This is, however, just a vague definition of these entities that inhabit the vibrant world of Mushishi. As to even call them a form of life would be an oversimplification. Detailed information on Mushi is scarce because the majority of humans are unaware 
aware of their existence. So what are mushi and why do they exist? This is the question that a mushishi, ginkgo, ponders constantly. Mushishi are those who research mushi in hopes of understanding their place in the world's hierarchy of life. Ginkgo chases rumors of occurrences that could be tied to mushi, all for the sake of finding an answer. It could, after all, lead to the meaning of life itself. And I think there's a new version or like a second season as well. And maybe a film. I feel like I just recently saw something. But these are all disconnected stories. The only connection between all of them is Ginkgo, of course. And more supernatural, I would say still new anime viewer approved. It's not too crazy. I personally was watching it on Amazon Prime, so Japanese with English subtitles. And not all of them, I would say like 10% have an okay slash happy ending because some of them are a lot of them. The majority are a bit of a downer. So just be aware of that. But it is very beautiful. And finally, my literature recommendation. I told you I was reading a lot. First up, the first manga series that I'm trying to read. And I read so many that the first comic series that I picked up, I started reading it from right to left by accident. Okay, so it's Made Sama volumes one through eight by Hiro Fujiwara. As if being class president of a predominantly male high school isn't hard enough, Misaki Ayuzawa has a major secret. She works at a maid cafe after school. How is she supposed to keep her image of being ultra smart, strong, and overachieving intact when school heartthrob Takumi Usui discovers her double life? I love it. It's so much fun. I really love the anime and I know that the manga continues it and so I just wanted to, well, really finishes the story since the anime was based off of the manga but I wanted to see where uh, my leads turn out. So just crazy, crazy stuff. The comic, the one that I was making that mistake, was Rust volumes 0 through 4 by Royden Lepp. Jet Jones is built for battle but must learn to be human. Young Roman Taylor struggles to keep his family's small farm afloat as the countryside heals from a devastating world war. And when a boy with a jetpack, Jet Jones, suddenly crash lands into their barn, Roman believes the secrets of this visitor's past may be the key to their survival. But Jet, a robot made to look like a boy, but actually built for battle, has brought more than he even knows to the farm, and Roman may learn that some secrets are best left untold. I love this. Uh, Lots of family, family relationships and sort of what it means I would say to be human or or have a soul it's beautiful it's beautiful it it I mean that's the the greatest thing is how important the art is because really there aren't much there is not much dialogue in here uh, there it certainly there is dialogue but there's not much it's, it's very much about the art so I recommend all four of those volumes and then thanks to chris he gave me the first three volumes of boom studios steed and mrs peel and i really enjoyed them just so much fun really have the characters down and their voices down the humor and all of that and it connects back to episodes of the series so you get to see new missions but they're connected back which is really interesting and then there was i mean the first three trades are have one big arc and then they've got like minor things in between as well so it all comes together at the end so i love that and finally the book it was the power by naomi alderman 
In the power, the world is a recognizable place. There's a rich Nigerian boy who lounges around the family pool, foster kid whose religious parents hide their true nature, an ambitious American politician, a tough London girl from a tricky family. But then a vital new force takes root and flourishes, causing their lives to converge with devastating effect. Teenage girls now have immense physical power. They can cause agonizing pain and even death. And with this small twist of nature, the world drastically resets. So the idea is that these teenage girls get the power of electricity and lightning. They're also able to awaken it in older women. And so there's a change in the power structure where women are become slowly more in control. But you also see with that just just how corrupting, you know, power is and also just how corrupted, you know, the human race is. And so the women start creating these atrocities. And what's really startling is that the atrocities that they are perpetuating or uh, perpetrating are the same atrocities that are currently happening to women. So it's it's flipping, you know, on its head, the relationship between males and females. But what happens when one has the power and the other one does not, and they end up acting the same way. But it's interesting at the very end, I don't know if I want, but at the very end, it's the author, there's sort of a a letter like within the novel that goes back and forth between a couple of people. This guy's researching what had happened during all this time. And he says that he feels like, cause they're in this time where women are in charge that if men were in charge, it would be a, a nonviolent society because they have no reason to be violent because women are more aggressive because of the nurturing and, and being, you know, that mothering instinct and things like that. So it's very interesting, but it's just, scary it's it's disturbing to see what are what things are done to men in the book but then you're like oh wait that's actually happening to women in real life so i recommend it if you're if you're looking for your mind to be blown and to consider gender roles and relationships between the male and female sex well that is all i have for you i think who knows if this will be under an hour might just be just scrape over it. But you can send any questions or comments to backrolloracle at gmail.com. Remember, I would love to hear your feedback on Heroes in Crisis number four, what you think about the art, the relationship between Batman and Batgirl in this current timeline, and do you think Harley and Batgirl are contemporaries? Let me know. You can also find the show on Google Play and Stitcher. Like the show on Facebook or follow it on Twitter at Batgirl the Oracle. Follow the Batman Universe on Facebook and Twitter as well. And be sure to support the Batman Universe by subscribing to Patreon. Once again, thanks to Mile High Comics for sponsoring Batgirl the Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Next time, well, next month, we'll have the Shipper special and some more JLA issues with Tom Panarese. So until then... Fly on, Babs lovers. Just plain Barbara Gordon, masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. Batgirl! Ah, I love a happy ending, don't you?